We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Truth Perspective. In the studio today, we have Carolyn McCallum. Hello. Shane Lachance. Hi, everybody. Myself, Harrison Cayley. And today on the show, we're joined by Paul Henry Abram. A bit about Paul. After high school, he joined the U.S. Air Force. And then after learning Russian, he was sent to Crete, Greece, as a spy for the NSA. After the Air Force, he studied law, which he practiced in California and Oregon until 2004. He's the author of the book, Trona, Bloody Trona, A Revolution in Microcosm. Now, Paul contacted us after our show that we ran a few weeks ago with Henning Melber on the life and death of Doug Hammerschold. And in that show, we mentioned some of the new evidence that has come to light suggesting that Hammerschold's plane crash wasn't an accident. But we didn't go into detail on a lot of that evidence. Um, now, Paul was stationed in Greece in September 1961, and that was when Hammerschold was killed. And in 2014, he spoke with the Hammerschold Commission about his experiences there. And in 2015, his testimony was used in the uh, the UN report of the Independent Panel of Experts presented to the UN General Assembly. So today we're going to talk to Paul about his experiences. So, Paul, thank you for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Now, just to start out with, a little bit of background. So you worked for the NSA. You were in the Air Force. Can you tell us a bit about how you got there? Yeah, well, how I got there was I was graduating from high school, and uh, my, my dad brought me a Reader's Digest article and said, hey, read this, and it was about the new blue-collar worker. <laughs> and what he was trying to do was dissuade me from going to college because he couldn't afford it, I couldn't afford it. I had already enlisted, enlisted, enrolled in uh, in uh, UCLA and had been accepted, and I was going to go to UCLA and become an engineer. And, and uh, this was the year of Sputnik. I graduated in '58, and so naturally everybody wanted to be an electronical engineer and then work on the space program. And my dad said, "No, read this." And so I read it, and really what it recommended was that you join the service. <laughs> my dad was trying to get rid of me. So I did. I went ahead and instead of, uh, I canceled everything at UCLA and I joined the Air Force. The first thing the Air Force does is test you. And I had had, uh, in high school, I had Jesuit high school, high school, I had had four years of Latin and, and two years of Greek, both ancient. And, uh, so instead of my high aptitude in engineering, the Air Force decided that my aptitude, which was just off the charts, was in language. So they said, for the good of the service, you're not going to get to be an engineer, and they sent me off to the Monterey Army Language School to learn Russian. I excelled. I graduated first in my class out of about 700 and some people. And when you do that, you get to pick your, your station. The top three graduates from the Army Language School, having learned Russian, get to choose their assignments, and I chose the island of Crete. 
and I was sent to the island of Crete. And unbeknownst to me, uh, I didn't know I was going to be, but when I got there, I was told I'm now working for NSA. Mm. Uh, the the station on Crete is called Arachleon. It's the Arachleon Air Air Station, and it's a NSA listening post. That's how I got there. So were were you prepared at all when they said, "Hey, you're going to be working for the NSA"? Was there any uh, inclination at all uh, that that was where you'd be headed? Well, no, there was no. Well, there was some. There was rumor because I had been sent to radio school on top of it before I go. Before we went to, uh, there were three of us that that got sent. Before we, after we left the language school, graduated with our wrestling degrees, we went to uh, radio schools and and we learned an awful lot about radio and communications, and distances, and what, what, what how to how to operate radios and. And so then when we got to Crete and realized that it was nothing but a listening post, uh, it consisted entirely of an underground bunker, huge, size of a football field with nothing but stations of, of guys doing, copying Morse code and, and little rooms for the language people. We had our own separate rooms recording uh, intercept radio interceptions. So, uh, yeah, it was it was obvious that, that we were going to be spying on people, intercepting telephone calls. We have to laugh now. We had to laugh, have to laugh now, not then. Then we thought it was horrific, but now we have to laugh at all the, the commentary and whatnot is, that's going on with, with Snowden and everybody else about, oh, my God, Hillary Clinton says, the, the, the NSA is monitoring uh, Americans' telephone calls. Well, uh, nobody seems to remember that in 1952, Harriet Truman through proclamation, created the NSA, and the NSA is really called SIGINT, and SIGINT stands for Signals Intelligence, and there are three types of SIGINT. There's comment, communications intelligence, radiant, radio, radio, I mean radar intelligence, and ELINT, electronics intelligence. Well, I was assigned naturally as a Russian linguist uh, to comment, communications intelligence, and, and the mandate in 1952 the Truman gave SIGINT to be called NSA. The mandate was to monitor telephone calls. So the first thing that we began doing when I got to the Island of Crete is I was assigned New York, Washington, D.C., um, Philadelphia, uh, I forget what other American cities, but then I monitored all telephone calls to London, Moscow, Paris, <laughs> Brussels, you name it. So yeah, we we've been monitoring we've been monitoring your phone calls, guys, since 1952. <laughs> oh, were, were these um, like high profile people that you were listening no. to, or oh, just that? No, just they're people. all phone calls, all phone calls in search of high priority people. Okay. Okay. So did so the NSA apparently had the prerogative of pulling anybody they thought they would be useful out of the regular services. Is that how you ended up there? Well, yes. The, the, something you need to know is that NSA, unlike any other agency, is is uh, is assigned to the Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. They did that for a reason, because they knew they wanted to have millions of so-called agents. Millions. <laughs> Nobody knows how many people are in NSA. Why? Because they're assigned to the Department of Defense, and that means they can pull people out of the armed forces anytime they want 
I was in the Air Force. I'm certain I was never counted as an NSA agent. I was mm-hmm. counted as an Air Force airman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they literally have millions. They don't have hundreds or thousands. They have millions because anytime they need somebody in any part of the world, that's one of the reasons we keep troops all around the world. They just pull troops out and and and, and NSA eyes them, you know. Mm. Wow. Wow. So you graduated high school in '58, and when did but, you act? When did you actually start um, doing your work in Crete? I believe I got to Crete. About I got the creek December '59, I believe. Okay, so you were working there, December '59. So almost two years, um, bringing up to to September 1961. Right, I left there. I left there in December '61, so I was there. Okay, for the shoot down in September '61. Okay, so they pulled you out shortly after that. Well, I had a two year okay, uh, commitment. Yeah. That's right. So is there anything interesting that happened in that first, like, year and a half? Um, was it just kind of routine stuff? And then just kind of tell the story of, of leading up to that night on September 17th and 18th of 61. Well, the, the, the boring stuff was just, like I said, monitoring the, all the phone calls, you know, just literally. Naturally, we would try, and NSA would feed us what they wanted monitored. You know, you know we've got this, this, this big wig is going to be in New York and blah, blah, blah. And uh, the uh, the uh, U.S. ambassador from from uh, Russia is going to be uh, getting back to his colleagues on the, uh, the, the trade commission uh, in Moscow. So we went to monitor that. But mostly it was just, hey, you guys have control. You 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 monitor uh, all the, every frequency there is. You know, they get this gigantic page after page of frequencies that radio telephones operate on out of say like New York and uh, Los Angeles, and we would record everything, and, you know, just volumes and volumes and hours and hours, and every now and then we'd hear something that sounded like, oh, NSA might want to hear about this, and so we'd, we'd uh, mark that. We sent everything to them, good or bad, but, but now and then we'd mark something that we thought was, was worthwhile. So, so you sent them all the phone calls about bringing a quart of milk and a loaf of bread home, too? <laughs> We sent them. Yes, we sent them. Uh, we sent. Uh, I, I'm going to admit to something. I, I erased one. We 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 were we recorded a kid talking to his mother, and the mother had had uh, gotten the doctors to write a letter and to his base commander uh, to get him home for uh, for their 50th wedding anniversary, and and it was fake. It was saying that the father was dying, and the kid had so so they. <laughs> I erased that one. But yeah, that's Good job. we spent everything. Yeah, buying a quart of milk. Went to, went to NSA. So, so how did it go from uh, the phone calls to uh, listening to the communications in, in the Congo? I mean, that, that's uh, quite well, it's a all the same. Way. It's all the same. The communications in the Congo are still radio telephone. But there's something I have to clarify real quick, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. You've heard of, you've read, I'm sure, about the other guy. You know, I'm, I'm the guy on Crete. There's another guy on Cyprus. Yeah. Southall. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, 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 Southall is, is, is just nonsense. Southall is complete and total nonsense. Uh, you cannot monitor, you cannot intercept uh, radio transmissions from aircraft 3,000 miles away. Uh, radio transmissions 
We know this today, for God's sakes. This, 40, 50 years later, we still can't do it. We know that. Oh, look at the plains, the Southeast Asian plains that disappeared. And, and we all learned, you know, that I learned, knew it already, but you guys learned, I hope, that these planes would would fly for so many hours and then they'd go to get switched over to another uh, ground station because th- they were going to lose the signal, right? Mm-hmm. The signal signals at that time given that aircraft, meaning Hammerskull aircraft and meaning the so-called Belgian aircraft that shot it down at Southall Plains had VHF radio communications installed in them and their range was 200 miles. So, so his, his story is absolute nonsense. Okay? And the, um, the distinction between his testimony, which is that um, he, he was basically saying that it was uh, another plane that, that hit uh, Hammerschultz plane, and, and you were saying it was a ground fire. Is that correct? Uh, much more important than that. It was a Belgian airplane, and it was the United States ground forces. That's the difference, and that's why his story is absolute nonsense. Number one, it was impossible for him to receive the interceptions. Number two, if you read his story, he retracted his story and said, you know, uh, now that I think about it, I'm not sure if I heard that or if I heard a recording of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says that. Okay, and he also says that an NSA, his, his, co- his cover, uh, his handler, told him to be at the radio station that night, the night that he was off duty, because, quote, something interesting was going to happen. Let me tell you what happened. Would you like my version of what happened? Sure, let's get into it. Okay, what happened was, if you know the politics, the enemies uh, of, of the Congo, the enemies of Hammerskold, were the U.S., Great Britain, and Belgium. Why? Because they owned all the mining rights all the mining interests, mostly copper. Mm-hmm. And uh, America had all the munitions, uh, billions in munitions going to all the warring factions throughout the Congo. Okay, Belgian was the fall guy. You know, there's two reasons I'm going to tell you this. One, uh, Southall could not have intercepted the Belgian plane, period. Two, he, was, he apparently was given a tape of someone who claims to have recorded a Belgian plane, okay? And, and three, NSA told him to be there. He's going to witness something important that night. And four, the Hammerskold Commission, the General Assembly's investigative panel, has made demands on the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, and NSA in both America and the equivalents in, in Great Britain, because they all have the same tapes. And the, the, both for Southall and for myself. Okay, now dig. I say the U.S. did it. Southall says Belgium did it. Who else would you get U.S. and U.K. blame than their only other competitor, Belgium? Okay, so they blame Belgium in a scenario that is impossible. They could not have intercepted his plane, okay? And, and yet they, they came out to the request of the UN 
when they demanded the tapes and the, well, they won't give them the tapes, but they did confirm that Savall was in the Air Force, was, was stationed there at the time, and could have heard what he heard. Okay, when it comes to me, who, ironically, blames the United States, they say, uh, we can't, we're not going to comply with your request because it violates our national security. Now, come on, where are we? So were, were you aware of uh, South Hall's statements to the commission um, when, you, um, when, you contacted, when you contacted them to, to make your statements? I've, I, I, I was never aware of the existence of South Hall, period. And, and doesn't that strike you as strange that the NSA would not tell us that there was another operator doing the exact same thing, supposedly doing the exact same thing that we were doing on Crete, because if they had told us that, we could have triangulated, mm. if you know what that means. We could have triangulated, Salvo and I could have cooperated, we could have exactly pinpointed every single thing that happened down there, where the communications came from, most importantly. We could have, pinp we could have pinpointed where my communication came from that said, the plane's approaching, it's well lit, and bam, we shot him down mm. from the ground from the ground so they kept they kept us secret you know i mean they go to Southall in the morning and tell him hey be at the base tonight something interesting is going to happen and they feed us ground frequencies mm -hmm. they also fed us the all of the frequencies for the um airports along hammersgold's route which was as i recall um Leopoldville to Elizabethville to Andola. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess NSA just never figured some idiot like me would be, would be stupid enough to go ahead and monitor the ground forces. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I knew, we all knew at the base that you can't, we can't monitor the aircraft. Mm -hmm. so, so let's go ahead and, and see what we can find on the ground. And we did. Mm -hmm. And we found the ground forces that shot down the plane. Well, I, I want to make a, f a few comments on, um, well, just some of the things we've talked about so far and some of the things in the UN uh, panel report. And also in Susan Williams' book, um, one observation that I had when reading uh, Susan's book, because she includes a lot, just pretty much anything, everything she could find, all of the, all the little tidbits, um, all the supposed leaks up until the time the book was written, which was 2011, and so she quotes a lot of Belgian mercenaries or alleged Belgian mercenaries and kind of um, hearsay testimony from other people. And the, the take-home message I got, get from that is that there's all these um, seemingly you know, spooks, these, these spies and mercenaries, all giving contradictory accounts. So you've got this one Belgian mercenary who claims to have shot down the plane, another that claims to have gone to the crash site and shot him, um, another uh, pilot who claims that he was going, to, he was in a plane and he was trying to divert Hammerschold's plane to a different location to to avoid meeting with Chombe. And so the the kind of conclusion that I draw from that is that all of these stories that the that are coming either from hearsay or from these mercenaries who are giving their own accounts is that they're they're all contradictory. And so if one of the well, they all can't be true, and either one of them is true or none of them are true. And then when we look at, um, like, Southall, 
and yours, uh, I, I made the same observation that you did when I was reading about Southall's account, because he says, first of all, like you mentioned, he said he got there and he heard, he heard the, the transmission, and then he said, well, it could have been a recording. And he also said he couldn't remember if he had actually heard it or if maybe it was written down. And and then maybe it was in English, remember, or maybe it was couldn't in remember French. if it was in French or in yeah. English. And then, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, in the UN panel report, now I'll have to look this over, but I'm pretty sure they they couldn't get in contact with him to talk with him because he said that he was ill. So so they didn't actually they weren't actually able to to um, like depose him or you know get a, get a valid testimony from him. All that we have is what he told um, media and Susan Williams. So I thought that was kind of suspicious too. So it it, it just kind of screams to me like all, all these or a lot of these leaks were put out there, you know, as disinformation. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? That's exactly my thoughts. Yeah. It it all is to me. It's all solidified by the claim that his NSA handler went to Savo and said, "Hey, be there tonight. Something interesting is going to happen." Mm-hmm. And what the interesting thing is, happened was that they fed him a tape recording of a Belgian plane shooting down Hammerskold's plane yeah. in, order, in order to blame it all on Belgium. Now, they don't know that simultaneously I'm recording the ground forces that say we just shot him down and, because they don't know I'm there, basically. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't South Hall, who presumably had more or less the same training as you, know that picking up an air transmission wasn't possible. I, I know. I don't know that. Mm. I, I don't know what training he had. Yeah. I don't know that he was a radio intercept operator trained as I was. Oh, okay. I, I mean, we were trained in amplitude modification and, and, and frequency mod, mod, modification and, and modulation. I mean, and, and we were, we, we were, you know, shown what happens to signals. I, mean, I don't know what kind of training he had. Okay, okay. Just, um, I just wanted to clarify because that. the the fact that he was asked to be out there that night um, kind of put a, a thought in my mind of well, what did he do out there? Mm-hmm. What you know, he wasn't that necessary. He's saying, hey, going out there, you might hear something neat, uh, and then he thinks he might have heard it on tape recording. Mm-hmm. And and probably at that point, you know, it's he's hearing a tape. Let, let, let me put it this way. If it was me and I had been there and put my earphones on and plugged in and heard it, a transmission, um, I would have been very skeptical. But, it, but, but when NSA hands me a tape recording and says this is a tape recording of a Belgian plane, listen to what he says, and I listen to a tape recording, I'm much more inclined to believe that because I don't know where it was recorded from. Mm-hmm. It could have been recorded less than 200 miles from the, from the aircraft. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that might have been why they fed him the tape recording instead of, instead of giving him the frequency he was supposed to monitor and not been able to monitor because he was too far away. So in other words, it's it's totally possible that Southall is telling the truth about what he experienced, and that but it was basically like a psyop on him and whoever else was in the NSA base. It could be that the, this was actually recorded somewhere else, and he listened to it or heard it, and but that it just wasn't genuine. 
That's actually my belief. Okay. Yeah. I believe I believe he believed what he said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I've got one question for you um, on this uh, on the radio thing, because uh, in the UN panel report they they say they got an expert, uh, this guy named Hammerberg, um, to ask about the the kind of radio frequencies, and so they they basically corroborated what you just said. Um, well, I'll read a little bit. He stated in this regard that the radio equipment on board the Katangese Fuga Mag- Magister was limited to the very high-frequency VHF systems only, which, due to the propagation properties of such frequencies, are limited to line-of-sight ranges approximately 140 kilometers between the ground station and an aircraft flying at 5,000 feet. Now, receiving such transmissions... That's what I learned. Yeah. Receiving, now, this is the, the part they add. Receiving such transmissions in Cyprus or Greece would thus have required an intermediate receiving and relay station in order to first receive and then retransmit a recording or transcript of such communications to Andola to the distant listening stations. If the communications were on high frequency, on the other hand, it would be possible without the relay, blah, blah, blah. But uh, So what do you think about the idea um, that it, was, it would have been possible with a relay station? Because further on they go and they say that there were American Dakotas sitting in the airfield at Andola with their engines running and that these could have been used as relay stations. Did you, did you follow all the planes you know, that have disappeared the last year or two? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The relay, a relay station goes like this. It would be on the recording. Well, uh, we're, we've reached our, our limit here now. Um, uh, good night, SO4. Good night, aircraft. And then, uh, hi, I'm SO5. I'm picking up aircraft. Hi, aircraft. And then, you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. A relay station isn't an automatic piece of equipment. Yeah. It's someone, it's someone receiving and then retransmitting. And that would appear on the tape. Okay. So it's possible in theory, but not very probable, not very likely that it actually occurred. Oh, I don't think there's any chance of it. Okay. It now, what did you actually hear that night? So you're you're in the station. It's night. Um, you're flipping back and forth between frequencies. What did you actually hear? Yeah, I had like four frequencies up at the time. I was just searching for. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> a couple that NSA had given us, and then a couple that I found by listening to those. You understand what I'm saying? When you're listening to it, NSA, gives me Andola's aircraft air- airport frequency, NHF frequency. So it's if they're communicating with ground people, when they communicate with someone, then I find who they're communicating with. I get that. So now I'm hearing both sides of the conversation. Well, in doing that. The second one that I picked up that I found is now talking to somebody else. Okay, so I can then very easily find that frequency as well. So I'm monitoring about four frequencies at once, and uh, that I, I picked up from the initial NSA frequencies. What's being said is just a lot of talk and excitement about Hammerskold's plane is coming in. The plane, <laughs> the plane, the plane. Anyway, the plane is coming in. Well. I knew we had our what we call our ditty boppers. Okay, that's our Morse code guys. Our Morse code guys are actually tracking the plane. Okay, our ELANT and our code guys. They so so they know exactly where the plane is, and so we know what they're talking about when they say things like the plane's overhead. <laughs> Morse code uh, gives us um, 
what am I trying to say? It gives us numbers, graphs, um, like GPS, and it says, "Yep, coincides." That's where that's you're hearing you're hearing uh, ground communicating to the plane, and the plane they're communicating to is based on our reception of the plane's Morse code and Eland. It's it's Hammerskold's plane. So we're following that. We're following that the whole uh, course. This took, you know, this started the day before. And so now that night, we're getting down to what the last things that I heard were simply, and we knew these were ground forces. They'd already, they'd already disclosed themselves, identified themselves as being right outside the Indole Airport. And so the, the main thing that I heard that was recorded was we, we see the plane. The plane is well lit. It's overhead and descending. And then on another frequency, a different accent that I could not identify, the Americans just shot down the UN plane. Now that's what I heard. And then there was just all hell broke loose. There was nothing but chatter on the four stations I'm listening to. And so I switched around, I switched around, I couldn't find anything in English or Russian, and everything was just a lot of chatter in languages I don't, I don't know. And so, so then after this, I believe you, you told your, like your superiors and other people at the station? Sure. Yeah, probably. I'm guessing you didn't hear anything back. That, did you guys discuss this afterwards? Well... I, absolutely, but immediately uh, the, the 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 protocol is is that we immediately take that tape off the reel, package it up, go down to the communications room, and tell them we get we write out on uh, on the log a brief description of what we heard and why it's important, and the log gets faxed. We had fax at that time. It gets faxed and it gets labeled why why. The, the outgoing message um, uh, character, characterization is why, why. Well, why, why means wake John F. Kennedy. I mean, that's what it means. Why, why means wake the president. So we sent that out, and then we packaged the tape and get out, get it out to, on, the, on the courier stack that's going out with the, with the next plane. And uh, copies are also made because copies went to uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, NSA. They went to GCHQ, London. That's that's general headquarters. Is it likely that Kennedy heard what you listened to? I don't know that. I'm, somebody might have just given him a, a quick report. I don't know that he listened to that tape. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it also went off. It also went off to uh, to where I then went after I left Creed. They went off to my headquarters. Went off to I was still on Air Force. I went off to United States Air Force Security Service headquarters in Kelly Air Force Base, Texas. So there's a few copies of this thing floating around. It's, it's all over. It's all over the place, and there'll be there'll be analysis of it. Yeah. You know, every place they go, people. Every place they go, people analyze them, and and and, and I know that the NSA is able to tell us what, who was on those frequencies. They might even be able to tell you the operator that said. The, the Americans just shot down the U.S. plane. Mm -hmm. 
They have the frequencies. They gave them to us. <laughs> In your statements um, to the panel, you mentioned that you that you believe that you were listening to the activities of American ground forces. Uh, how that, that was, it, was it the accent, or how how did you determine that you were listening to uh, Americans? Some of the um, some of the language used, like I was sixty nine thirtieth rate. I was sixty nine thirtieth RGM. Okay, I was attached to the my my unit on the ground was a sixty nine thirtieth radio group mobile. And I heard those types of designations from ground forces. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the I'm the 34702 uh, rifle unit. Okay, I mean the, the the designations I was hearing, and the call signs and things when when guys would log on and log off. You know, it's you you, you excuse me when you're when you're doing communications, you're always saying your call word. And the way you sign out, um, Arabics always sign out with howl, which is over. Americans always sign out with over. Okay, so if you hear over, it's it's an American. You know, how do you oh how do you read me? Your, your first communication always you send out your 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 signal, and then you say how do you read me? And someone will come back and say I read you five by five. Well, I mean it's perfect, no problems. Or I read you four by two, you know, it's not too good. So things like that led us to believe it was American. Plus, plus just sometimes a Southern accent. Mm-hmm. So sometimes a real American accent. Mm-hmm. I mean, you learned, you, you taught those things. And, and that's why I say the voice that said the Americans just shot down the UN plane, I, I don't recognize the, the accent. It was not Australian. It was not British. It was not Russian. Maybe South African. It was not French. Easily could have been South African mm-hmm. of, of many types. Now, after this happened, were you like debriefed or anything? Did anyone tell you not to say anything, or was it just like how did that no. play out? No, you have to understand. This, there were three of us. Um, there were three linguists on the island, and we did three shifts. So there was only one of us present at any time. We had a, um, we switched around. Sometimes I had to, if someone got ill or whatever, I had to monitor an Arabic post. <laughs> I don't speak a word of Arabic. Sometimes an Arabic would have to monitor my post. Doesn't speak a word of Russian. We had one um, ling- Russian linguist uh, superior who was civilian. He was NSA. And in my opinion, he didn't speak a word of English. I mean, I mean, right? I mean, anything I told him, he'd ask me what was said. I'd tell him what was said. He'd always agree that that's what was said. <laughs> oh, I, I can give you a, a quick example if you got time. Sure, yeah. A very, very funny one. A very funny one. This time I did wake up uh, John Kennedy because I got a word back from John Kennedy. We, we were given an assignment by NSA to find, to verify, confirm the revolution that had taken place inside the Soviet Union, or if a revolution had taken place. This was in the 60s. And uh, the reason was that the entire Soviet Union had gone blackout. There was no communications whatsoever of any type going out of, of the Soviet Union. And 
So we were to look for anything we could find that might indicate that. Well, I, I was monitoring radio telephone from New York to Moscow. And no, no, I'm sorry, from New York to, oh God, I think it was, it was either Leopoldville or Elizabethville. And it was in the Congo. And I, and I heard this, this conversation is very boring. It was about a bunch of things, mostly things, things, created things. And, and finally, this guy says, I was I stayed with it because the guy was supposed to be a high um, uh, ministry official with the Soviet Union. So I hear him say, what does the new developing Soviet, uh, I mean, uh, African bloc, what do the new developing African nations, the African bloc, think of the Soviet revolution? Okay. Wow. <laughs> I got it. So I just, you know, with something like that, you just immediately, you know, you press the YY button and you, you get down to communications and you send the facts off and you alert the world that there has been. And we had been on, uh, on high alert. We had never held guns while I was on the island of Crete. And for the last three, four days, we had to take shifts carrying guns around the perimeter of the base to, to guard it. And, and so this got, was confirmation that, that it was valid. There was a revolution within the Soviet Union. God only knows who was going to take over and what was going to happen. Well, within, oh, within an hour and a half, I got back directly from the White House. I didn't, to me, but to the base commander, to the base uh we got back. <laughs> Thank you very much for your, you know, your little ball. But, but it, the actual transmission is, what do the uh, developing African bloc think of uh, the Soviet trade resolution? Resolution. Trade resolution. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, and, you know, come on. And, and revolution. Resolution. You know. We had something going here. <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty close. Revolutia and Resolutia. Oh, so anyway, I got laughed at a lot. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, we had guys. We had guys coming in from from. Um, we had guys being restationed from Anchorage, Alaska, that would that would look me look for me. They would they would come and <laughs> check me out. Man, I got to talk to you. You woke us up. We had to walk perimeter in the snow for two days. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. There was a lot of stuff happening. So, but after the after the Hammersfeld crash, so like you said, there's basically no debriefing and no. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. That's, that's how right. hang loose it was. No, there was no debriefing. Yeah. Like I said, who was to debrief me? The only guy there that that would even admit to being a a Russian supervisor just really didn't know Russian. So he come to me and said that this is what it said. By then it was all you know transcribed. Yeah. And he said this is. What it, and I said yeah. So it's like wow. I, you want to hear it? No, no, I take your word for it. <laughs> and, and there was only me and him. And then the other two guys, the other two Russians, uh, were on different shifts, so they weren't there. But actually, I discussed it with them. But there was no debriefing of any kind. So in the years after, did you ever, um, or I guess maybe more recently, did you ever try to contact um, the guys that were there with you to corroborate your story with the UN, or are they around still? Well, no, to, to answer your question, no, I didn't. Because number one, I don't remember their names. Yeah. Like I said, they were on different shifts. Mm -hmm. I remember one guy's name was Fred, 
and I, I tried for a while. I tried and racked my brain. I can't come up with anything other than thread. I don't know where to look. Yeah. Um, I have photographs, and some of the guys are in some of the photographs. They might be found through that, but but I never. No, I never did. Yeah. If if you read my book, you, you'll see that it's 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 basically a it's an afterthought. You know, it, it, after I left the service, I left the service, and and I read the bullshit that came out about it, and I figured, well, what can I do about it? And and then I, I immediately out of the service, within a month, I was in law school. So I didn't have any time to, you know, to think about this stuff. Or, yeah. And then it wasn't until uh, the strike situation in 1970 this happened in 61, so nine years later in 70, I uh, I talked about it. You know, I laid out what happened, but just almost as an effort. It was it was for a reason. You know, it was to convince these guys as to why they should trust me, as to why I really was upset with our government. Um, and then in 13, no, 20, about 2010, I started writing the book. Now, in in uh, your book, you you talk a little bit about um, monitoring the communications with uh, Bush pilots, and a little earlier, you were talking about the American interest in the Congo was uh, they were making huge amounts of money with uh, with ammunition sales. Uh, could you talk about like what you heard uh, about the what the pilots were doing? Yeah, and first, I want to clarify how I heard them, because now I'm claiming to hear radio transmissions more than 3,000 miles away, right? Yeah. Does that contradict everything I said? No. Bush pilots carried on board their aircraft. These are little tiny aircraft. These are these little Cessnas and single-engine, single-seat planes. They carried on their airplanes. Um, oh, what's the matter with me? Um, <laughs> truckers. 10-4, good buddy. CDs. CDs. They carried on civil band radios. That's how they so so we were able to monitor them, uh, and they and they had to have long distance, long range. They couldn't communicate uh, effectively on their VHF installed equipment because it would only go about 200 miles, and they're they're selling to the entire Congo and all of South Africa. Uh, they're they're they want their bids to go out as as far as they can. So yeah, number one. The way we monitored those planes is they were carrying. We confirmed that they were carrying on board um, CV radios. Number two, um, we actually heard planes take off, say from Leopoldville, uh, and make contact with the place they were going to land. They'd fly, file a, they would file a flight plan, so we knew where they were going, and they would make contact with where they were going, and they would confirm the price, and. And everyone's listening to them, and so they would say, you know, like forty thousand for this, this four boxes of, of automatic weapons and, and munitions, and immediately someone else would come in, hey, fifty, fifty, well, and then somebody else would come in with sixty, and somebody comes sixty-five, and 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 so then whoever the highest bidder was, he'd get their, you know, where to land to meet them, and he'd go meet them and sell to the highest bidder. So it was basically a, a an auction. In flight, uh, in flight <laughs> wow. with them carrying the actual uh, munitions and guns and ammo. And that's exactly won. what was going on. Oh that's, why, that, 
that's that's why earlier when you were talking about mercenaries, you know, don't forget mercenaries. <laughs> they're in it for the money, yeah. and they'll say anything. So yeah, we actually we witnessed that. They, they would take off bound for one airport, and they would land in another one for a higher price, and 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 that's part of what got Hammerschild killed. There's no doubt in our mind that that's part of what got him killed was 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 he was going to end all the munitions. I mean, there's no need for him. We're going to have peace, folks. Bad for business. Yeah, that's that's just what I was going to say. That like so the context of what was happening in the Congo was this conflict, and the Americans were basically trying to arm all sides and, you know, like they typically do um, in nations is just like create this chaos. And, and yeah, and Hammerschild was, was trying to, to end that and was very close to reaching that peace agreement. I mean, it was supposed to happen, I believe the, the following morning um, when uh, Toshomba was, was, he he was ready. He was all ready to agree uh, to the. He was going to be the last signatory to the peace agreement. You, I was there. You weren't, and, and you have it down exactly. That's exactly how it was. But in, in addition to Belgium, UK, and and US fighting over the the minerals. Well, weren't they? They were concerned about the the industries being nationalized, and that would put them all out, or they'd have That's to pay, right. they'd have to pay market price for. You know, if Congo was allowed to control its own resources, so there were multiple factors at work here. That's exactly right, mm-hmm. and 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 that's why I have this theory so strong in my mind that that's why not Salvo, not Salvo, who believed what he was hearing, but but the NSA blamed Belgium. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, let's, let's get them out of the way while we're at it. You know, there's th- three of us are going to have less to divvy up. Yeah, and when we interviewed Henning Melber about this, he pointed out that just uh, last year in late 2015, there was uh, the the UN General Assembly um, resolution to uh, I can't remember what what the exact terms of it were, but I believe it was to to reopen the investigation or something like that. And the three of the countries that signed on to the resolution were Belgium, France, and Russia. And the only two that refused to sign on were the UK and the US. Well, of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Belgium would very much like to get their name cleared. You know, no, our plane did not shoot them down. Um, I have a uh, a gentleman whose father was on board the plane and was killed. Uh, feeds me a lot of what's going on. You know, in, in Sweden and and Belgium and whatnot and. and the, you can't believe. Well, maybe maybe you know already, but but yeah, I, I I couldn't believe at the time the interest in deciding what the hell happened in Europe. I mean, it's just the interest in Europe is phenomenal. They really loved that man. They really loved him. Now, of course, they're getting old, and they want to know soon yeah. before they're all gone. So, Paul, you said you started writing your book in 2010. Was that when you kind of decided um, that you would tell this story? And um, how did you end up getting in contact with the Hammerschold Commission? Well, I'm, that confuses me. 2010, I began writing the book about the strike. Yeah. Um, I don't think, uh, honestly, I don't think I had any inkling of putting in the Hammerschold bit okay. or them sending us out on ferret flights to kill us a bit or 
or that that the U.S. Navy murdered U.S. Navy pilots bid. I don't think I. Those are all things in my mind that I I might even have decided later on to write complete books on. But so I began writing, say, in 2010. But I didn't finish the book till 2013, and I don't think it was until probably late 2012 that I started writing a chapter and including the the uh, Scroll and the other two things. The reason being that the more I wrote and the more I I researched, and the more I went back and talked to people, the more I realized that they really were some, very few, uh, of my clients, very few, the older, older, the oldest. The only one I mentioned in the book is Pappy Denman, and, and he was old by my standards then. He was in his 60s. I was in my 30s. He was one of the few that had a lot of doubt about why I was there, how I could be so uh, so gung ho for the union, how I could be uh, so anti everything you could call authority, which included our government, other governments, most governments. At, at the age of thirty, he couldn't understand it, you know, and so that led him to distrust me, and that led him to to kind of try to breed distrust in others. And I couldn't allow that to happen. So one day I sat them all down and I told them these stories. And that's the first time that they were told in real time. And then, like I say, the more I researched and, and, and thought about and plotted out the book, uh, it came to me that, you know, I, that, that was important. I need to put that in there because because some are going to say, you know, Devin really hated you. Devin didn't trust you as far as he could throw you, you know. So so I had to give some reason as to why they suddenly began to and why they saw why they should trust a 30-year-old disliking authority. <laughs> so I didn't, I don't know if I answered your question or not, I didn't write anything about Hammerskull and others until probably at least 2013, Okay. shortly, not long before the book was published. And then, and then, in about a year, the Hammerschild Commission got together to do their little their investigation and release their report. So unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to you, okay, yeah. So you actually got in contact with them after the report was finished. Did uh, did you find out about them, or did they find out about you? I I found out about them through Alan Cowell. Do you know that who Alan? No. Alan Cowell is a reporter for the New York Times in London and a good friend of mine uh, who also is an author um, saw Alan Cowell's report. He subscribes for whatever reasons to the London Times and he sent me Cowell's uh, report and Cowell's report mentioned that the first report, and that they're getting ready, they're thinking about reopening and doing another whole investigation. So it's Cowell that I contacted. And then Cowell put me in touch with the UN. Mm. Now you've got a story, um, I'm not, I don't know it, I haven't heard it yet, but what, what's this late night phone call that you got from the UN? Oh, oh that's just, that's just, uh, lets me know that, you know, what I'm doing is has some meaning, and that they are taking it ser- serious. The um, uh, 
the um, attorney, the one of my two attorneys, the title is the, she's the, the attorney. She's the attorney, she's the attorney general for the general assembly. And she has been staying in touch with me. She's the one that first called me and asked if, if the UN could interview me and, and she set it up and she's stayed in touch ever since. Well, I don't know why, because good God is midnight back in her office and it was after nine o'clock here. My wife is already in bed. I was getting ready for bed and she calls and says, hi, I hope we're not bothering you, but you know, I just wanted to keep you informed because I know you haven't heard from us in a long time. And, um, I want you to know that we have continued to send off requests, now sounding more like demands, to NSA, United States Air Force, and U.S. Department of Defense, and their counterparts in, in the U.K. And we're still getting the same responses. We're still getting uh, go away as to, well, as to, as to um, Southall, They'd already confirmed everything. Yes, yes, he's going to. But as to me, they weren't. I fully expected they would deny my existence, but they didn't. Instead, they have repeatedly sent the same message: we refuse to honor your request because it would violate national security. Now, this is a request as to was Paul Abram in the Air Force at this time. Was he stationed at this time at this place? Was he on the island of Crete? Did he have radio? Was he a Russian linguist? Okay. Those are all the things they asked about Southall, and they confirmed. Those are the things they've asked about me, and they continue to say, we're not going to respond based on national security. So she just called to tell me that that's, that's what's happening, Paul, and I want to tell you that what we've done is we've given all three agencies till January. I, I don't know what date. I, I was too shook to think to ask a date. So I don't know if she means January 1st or what, and I haven't gotten back to her. But she said we've given them until January. If they don't respond, if they don't provide us with the tapes, if they don't rep- provide us with documents, then we're going to go ahead and we're going to reach conclusions based on the information we have. And we're going to publish the We're going we're gonna to write, write a report. The report they wrote, you've read. You know, the report has no conclusion. So she said, we're going to get together. We're going to, we're going to finalize the report by actually reaching conclusions uh, and, and NSA and, and be damned. <laughs> so that's where, that's where it stands. That's, that's why, at least with me, it, it's, it's building and building because I've got only about another month to see if they're going to say anything or if they're going to actually base some of their opinions on, on my testimony. One of the things that Henning Melber brought up when we had our discussion with him was this National Geographic program. And we talked a bit about it now. Um, you were f- flown to Ottawa to film for that yeah. program, is that correct? Can you tell us a bit about yeah. that? Well, I forget how they got in touch with me. I really do. But but a guy named Marco Avolio was, was the main guy. He, he contacted me and just asked me, you know, what I like to... Uh, well, no, would I, would I uh, let him interview me a bit? So he interviewed me a bit, and then he said, yeah, I definitely want to talk to you in person. We're doing a show called, we do a, a episode series called May Day, and May Day concentrates on 
planes that just there's no explanation whether whether it's it was abducted or whether it crashed or shot down whatever it's kind of concentrates on unexplained accidents of aircraft and we consider Hammers Gold's planes uh, of that type you know at excuse me and we would like to know if you'd come up to Ottawa and, and let us interview in Ottawa as part of that program. So I say, hell yeah. So they flew me up to Ottawa, put me in a nice hotel. They came to the hotel, a whole crew, and they brought other witnesses as well. Uh, I got to, I got introduced to one of them. I got to speak with him because he finished just before I started. And he was the first, he's the last living first responder to the crash site. And He's one of the ones that saw things that are in the Williams book about that some of the mercenaries said. He said the same things. He said he said Hammerskull had a bullet in his head. Uh, he said he said a few things. Uh, I think he's the one that said Hammerskull's body was outside the plane. At any rate, um, they then interviewed me for oh, a good hour plus on TV and. And that's it. Flew me back to home and and uh, told me that it would be showing. This was last October, I believe. I know it was 20 degrees below zero up there, so it was around October, November, maybe, and uh, January even. And they told me it should show as things go normally around March or April. Well, it's now April, and so I just wrote Marco. Uh, uh, yesterday, and I haven't heard back from him yet to see if it, the one thing that, that bothers me is I understood that um, what's his name Murdoch has purchased National Geographic. Mm-hmm. That is something <clears throat> to be concerned over. Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking, well, that may not be a show he wants shown. Yeah. Well, I think um, uh, Henning Melbert. I th- I haven't seen the program, but I think from the from our conversation with him, it was aired already. But because um, I'm pretty sure it's the same program, unless National Geographic did two on it. But he said that it was basically a whitewash, and that uh, they ended the show just with the the basic conclusion that oh, we don't know what happened, and it was probably pilot error. And he was really disappointed with uh, with National Geographic for for basically ignoring all the new evidence. But um, I guess I'm going to have to see it because it sounds like I mean they talked with you, and for them to then go ahead with the program without I mean, drawing the the correct conclusions is just. Well, we'll we need to know too, like how well, much of the I, testimony you, you was. You say there I'm on the program. There. Well, no, he we do. He didn't say we didn't get into too much detail about it. So, um, that's going to be a, a project for me. I'm going to try to get a get a hold of that and see if it's see if it's available anywhere to see because uh, I don't have the details. All I know is that he said that they didn't. Um, how did he put it? He said something like. They didn't take into account any of the new evidence that has been around, you know, since Susan Williams' book. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. You may have ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I started worrying about that as soon as I heard Murdoch. But yeah. Now you're, now you're explaining also to me why Marco hasn't gotten that, yeah. you know, yeah. last couple of emails. Yeah, he's hiding. Oh, wow, I'm disappointed. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but... Uh, <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> But like we said on the show, National Geographic, like you said, Murdoch's involved, and 
I think that's just one of those programs that, well, and institutions really, and magazines that you can't really trust anymore for really, really good investigative journalism or getting to the bottom of a story. It um, isn't that sad, yeah. given how many years they were who they are. Yeah. Well, I'm going to try to get. See, a hold if of you that. find something out, could you let me know? Absolutely. Yeah, I'll let you know. I'll, I'll let you know what I find and and try to get that to you. I think we might end it there, Paul. Um, is there any? I'm talked out. You're talked out. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for getting in touch with us, and I hope we can, uh, you know, get this to as many listeners as possible. Uh, is there anything? Any final words you wanted to say? Yeah, you can buy my book at www.paulhenryabram.com. All right. And and the book's title is uh, Trona. Uh, Trona, Bloody Trona. Bloody Trona. It's called uh, Revolution in Microcosm. And that's that's primarily on the, your work in the Mojave Desert in the 1970s, uh, right. working with unions um, and the yeah, bloody it's, labor it's dispute. Strike. It's a strike that, uh, I don't know if you remember Mike Gavin back. Mike Gavin was a famous anchor, I think, on NBC mm-hmm. in the 70s, and he came out and he, uh, he was going to do a little, you know, two, two second, 30 second spot and he ended up spending, spending four or five days and called his wife, who was a student at UCLA, and said, get up here. You forget your classes. You're going to learn that more up here in, in one day than you're going to learn in a year at UCLA Law School. And she came up, and she stayed for a while. And then and then we started getting, oh, God, hundreds of students came up and uh, joined the strike. And it's just it's really a heavy thing. My, my point was Mike Gavin termed it, Labor's bloodiest struggle since the Embarcadero strike of 1934, and that was pretty heavy. All right. Well, thanks so much, Paul. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on yeah. and giving us all the juicy details. Absolutely. It's it's. Oh, great. I appreciate I appreciate the interest. Believe me. All right. Okay. Well, thanks hey, so much thank again, Paul. Thank you all. Okay. Take thank care, you, Paul. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Oh, I, I'm really pleased getting turned on to your station and your website and all. I didn't know of the Truth Perspective. Yeah, we're glad you found us. Yep. Well, I'm a follower now. Thank okay, you. Okay, great. Tell Thanks, your friends. Bye, everyone. Okay. Hey, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So that was Paul Henry Abram. Abram, we just want to thank him again for being on the show. And for that last little bit, I actually I did a Google search. And while I haven't watched the, the National Geographic May Day program, I did find out um, that it looks like Paul's interview at least part of it was included so we'll just have to watch it and to to find out how much was included and what they said about it um it looks like the show's available on the national geographic um channel um on youtube so yeah if listeners want to check it out and find out what they what they did to it you're able to i'll check it out and see what happens or what, what they said about it but uh now uh we did a little studio change up so we have in the studio now uh, Sod Editors, Corey Shank. Hello, everybody. And Ilan Martin. Hi. And it looks like we've... Uh, oh, and, no, we don't have a caller. Sorry. And Carolyn McCallum. <laughs> yeah, she's still here. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Shane's gone. And, uh, but, oh, so we're going to try something new today for... I mean, as you can tell, we're broadcasting on Sunday. This is our new format, so we're going to be um, kind of sharing hosts and changing it up a bit with Joe and Neil and doing truth perspectives and behind the headlines, depending on what topic we're doing for each week. 
So look, f uh, yeah, listen in. We're it's going to be it's going to be just as good, probably better than it was before. Uh, Always. <laughs> yeah. So, but today we're going to try. We're going to have a new segment. We have SOT editor Brent on the line, and so yeah, we're going to try a new segment. This is about cops and stuff. So we're going to do a little intro. And then uh, we're going to get Brent on the air. So let's try this out. Where's your warrant? Where's your warrant? Show me the warrant. Show me the warrant. Show me the warrant. We don't need a warrant. Yes, you do. Oh, yes. Wow. They just said they do not have a warrant. Get out of my house unless you have a warrant right now. If you keep smiling at me, like it's some kind of funny thing. Okay. I, okay. There's nothing funny about this. No, hey, then stop smiling. Great, boys. Hands in your head. Do it. Do it now. And with that, we've got Brent on the line. Brent, are you there? Yeah, I'm there. Can you hear me? Hi, Brent. Yeah, we can hear you just fine. That was quite the intro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty intense, huh? Uh, it was good. I liked it. Um, so basically, the segment is, the call. I'm going to call it the Police State Roundup, and it's just a collection of stories about uh, police abuses of power, um, and I'll try to keep it to as most recent as possible. Um, but since it's the first one, I might reference some stuff that that's, goes back a year or two. Um, so the first thing I wanted to talk about was a story that came out um, just this past week. Um, cops in Clark County, Washington, uh, basically invaded the home of a family um, on a tip. They got a phone call from Kentucky. It looks like it was some sort of interfamilial dispute. But basically, these police, for over an hour, um, stalked and uh, harassed this family. Uh, the, the father's name was Ilya Pecherenko. And he caught the whole thing on video. Um, basically, it starts about 15 minutes or so before they invade the house. And <clears throat> in the video, uh, both Ilya and his wife can be seen talking to the police, uh, you know, telling them everything's fine. Um, there's no reason for them to be there. They can leave. And the cops refuse to leave. Um, eventually they break into the house, um, assault both Ilya and his wife. Um, they take the phone, they delete the video, unaware that the video was thankfully uploaded to a, a cloud. And so we have the video, but basically, um, you know, they, they didn't have a warrant. They didn't have any probable cause. Um, and it's just a really extreme case of, uh, of police abuse and, Especially now we, we have these laws coming to power. Uh, they're, they're designed to be anti-domestic um, violence laws so that police don't necessarily need um, probable cause to enter a house if they think there's some sort of domestic violence going on. And what it looks like is that they kind of use that sort of justification here to basically attack this family. They kidnapped their children. There were at least two kids. Um and they're now in child protective services. Um, and it was just a, a really, really terrifying sort of example of, of police abuse of power. Well, just um, a you, I'm sorry, Brent, just commenting on that domestic violence uh, tidbit you were talking about there. I just remember reading on SOT that uh, the police are uh, 15 times more likely to be uh, domestic abusers themselves which you know just you know goes to show you what happens when you have these types of people given the 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 right to just break into a house and assault a family like this. Yeah, totally. And one thing that was interesting is that um, 
the unidentified caller from Kentucky suggested that the, both Stephanie, Stephanie is uh, Ilya's wife, both her hands were broken during this domestic uh, assault that supposedly occurred. When in the video, we can see clearly that her hands are fine. She's holding, you know, a decent sized child and she's okay. And she repeats several times that she's okay, that she wants them to leave. Um, and they keep trying to isolate her to get her alone. Um, and she refuses because she's afraid because the cops outside have guns drawn. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it's very common. You hear stories about, um, police committing acts of domestic abuse. Um, and that's just one example. I have read so many things just recently preparing for this segment. Just this past week, uh, teenagers were attacked in Baltimore right outside of their house for refusing police the right to enter. They were, uh, there's three kids living together, um, with, uh, with a mom in, in a house in Baltimore. Uh, one kid got locked out, and so he was knocking on the door trying to get in and out. Apparently, the police received a call about you know suspicious comings and goings um, to this house, and so they showed up and they wanted to search. They didn't have a warrant, and um, the the kids clearly know their rights. Uh, I think the mom of one of the children was actually a retired officer, and he refuses to let them in. Um, once this guy, this cop, has his backup arrive, the backup comes right out of the car walks right up to one of the kids who's in the doorway, grabs him, pulls him out of the house, throws him on the ground, and they arrest him. For what, I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, then I've seen another video of a cop verbally threatening a small child for smiling. Like it was, there's a, Somebody took a little video as this cop comes on a bus. He walks back in the bus, and he basically says, oh, keep smiling, keep smiling. I'll show you, show you what I'm going to do to you. Keep smiling. And uh, it was just unreal. Um, there's another video of cops jumping on a 16-year-old at an Earth Day celebration, a, a gang of them, about five cops, um, hold down to beat this guy. The story there was basically a fight had broken out somewhere near him, and um, one of the cops grabbed him and tried to move him back, and he didn't like the fact that he was being touched. And, you know, he addressed the officer and asked why he was grabbing him, and that started a physical altercation. Um, also in the news recently, Peter Lang, who was the trigger finger behind the death of Akai Gurley in New York City, um, he was convicted of manslaughter uh, by a jury of his peers, and the judge in the case reduced the charges, and now he will not be serving any prison time, but his sentence was commuted to probation and like 800 hours of community service. Does he and, still have um, his job? I don't know. I doubt it. Mm-hmm. Um and that's one guy you but, don't want. That at least. Yeah. yeah. And basically, like, this is another, I think this this case with Peter Lang, it's a very high-profile case, but it highlights something that I'm seeing very consistently. When officers are, you know, convicted or charged with something, um, they get a very reduced sentence, very light-handed. Um, there was, uh, let's see, um, Officer Daniel Harmon Wright shot and killed Patricia Cook in Culpeper, Virginia on February 9th, 2012. He was convicted, but he only served three years for voluntary manslaughter, malicious shooting into a vehicle, and felony with a firearm. And the story there, Patricia Cook, she was a Sunday school teacher. Uh, she was in a parking lot uh, of an elementary school, and she was trying to leave. And the police officer, uh, I guess they got a call about a suspicious vehicle. Um, was trying to get her out of the car. She refused. Um, she rolled the window up and started to drive away. And I guess that infuriated the officer to the point where he felt the need to fire upon her. Um, so he was convicted. 
uh, Darren Tomlinson, he's a police officer in uh, the UK, and he was convicted of raping a girl uh, under 13 years old, uh, sexual assault a child, and he committed some sort of sexual act with a dog that he recorded. All of these things he recorded on his cell phone video, which is how they got him. Um, and he was given 11 years. Uh, and then we have a Plano police officer, uh, Plano's in Texas, who was arrested twice in a three-week period for indecency with child and possession of child pornography. Um, he was arrested on December 23rd of 2014 and charged. He posted bail. Um, and then on the 8th of January, he was arrested again, uh, charged with possession of child pornography. Um, and he even though he demonstrated that, you know, he was a, a repeat offender, he was granted bail and released again on bail. So it's just the, the consistent pattern of, of police officers, just because they're police officers, they get this very light-handed treatment by the justice system. I mean, and I have so many more examples. There was uh, an officer in charge of a rape case in Oklahoma, and he stalked the victim and harassed her to the point where <laughs> he got caught. Um, there was another uh, officer, uh, uh, very often with these police, what I'm seeing is that there's a lot of sex crimes. They seem to really uh, abuse their authority and use it so that they can commit and get away with um, all these weird sex crimes. Um, there was this guy, Officer Christopher Warren, who he was accused several times of sex-related crimes. But each time there was some sort of nuance, uh, some sort of technical reason that he could get away, couldn't, couldn't be charged. Um, finally, he was convicted uh, of raping a five-year-old girl with a pencil, and there was a mistrial um, because one of the jurors apparently read a newspaper article related to the story and, and admitted to it. Um, second trial ended up found, finding him not guilty uh, on the basis that this girl was coached into the story. Whether or not that is true, um, clearly there was enough evidence to convict him the first time around. And given his history, which the jurors were not allowed to be, uh, you know, they're not allowed to be exposed to that, um, it's, it's, it's questionable. So it's just I see all these kinds of uh, really disturbing sex crimes committed by officers. Um, and the same is true when uh, officers commit, you know, vehicular homicide, when they, they hit somebody. Um, there was not too long ago a 10-year-old boy in Franklin Township, New Jersey, who was hit by a cop um, and killed and no charges were filed. Um, you know, he was kind of just like, you know, very, he felt very guilty, I'm sure. Um, but it was just, uh, there's no charges against that. Detroit police um, were on a high speed chase. They hit and kill two children and they continue the chase and three more kids are injured. Uh, some of them were injured critically. I think they ended up recovering, but two out of the five ended up dying. And I don't think there was any any consequences for that. Mm. So we just see again and again, you know, cops are able to commit these horrendous crimes, whether it's, you know, hit and run, um, sexual abuse, uh, physical assault, domestic violence, and they get a slap on the wrist. Now, if, if you or I or anyone else who's not a police officer were to commit the same crime, we'd be locked up for God knows how long. Well, I think just this last week, uh, Brent, there was a story about um, some police officers in New Orleans uh, who were um, actually uh, convicted of killing um, several innocent uh, people 
uh, in New Orleans during the 2005 Katrina hurricane uh, disaster. Uh, these were people oh, who yeah, were, I remember that one. They were just trying to get to safety, uh, basically. They were unarmed, and uh, these several police officers uh, drew fire on them. Uh, I, I don't know if all of them were, were killed. I think there were eight of them who were at least injured and a few killed. Um, they were convicted. Uh, the police officers ad- admitted to uh, their crimes, and um, and only recently a judge came out and, and said, you know, that he was going to reduce their sentences, uh, <laughs> in, including time served, uh, because the original judgment was abominable or, or, or words to that effect. Um, and, uh, you know, if you remember all those events in, in Katrina, uh, basically um, all of these poor people who had nowhere to go and, and were actually being kind of corralled and, and uh, stymied uh, from getting to safety by the National Guard, by the police. Um, they were, you know, they were corralled. They were desperate. Um, so it, it just seems to be that there's this kind of larger uh, mentality, um, you know, ever since 2001, 9-11, where, where all of this police violence is just a kind of uh, reflection of what the U.S. has been doing around the world. It, it seems part and parcel of the same thing. Right. They say it's like yeah, the, no. the rise of the warrior cop, but I mean, that's not a, that's not a warrior. That's just, uh, that's a sadist, a sadistic uh, butcher. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's a, it's insane. And plus the ongoing militarization. I mean, it, it's like the more toys you get, the more you want to use them. Yeah, it's, it's pretty disturbing. I, I've been keeping this uh, database um, ever since I, decided to start doing this segment and um the the breadth of the crimes you know there's it goes from uh five-year-old victims to 100 year olds like people of all ages are are suspect all races i mean it does tend to affect african-americans latinos uh with a higher percentage than it does you know white members of the population but it does happen to white people you know it happens to middle-aged white people pretty frequently um it's just and it's really disturbing there's a a story from Chicago back in March about an 82-year-old grandmother who was hospitalized after the police raided the wrong house. <clears throat> and, you know, she eventually the guy uh, who um, whose house was supposed to be raided saw what was happening next door. He was familiar with the woman. He came right over and told the police that they had the wrong house. Like, he basically, you know, leave the woman alone. You're here for me, not her. Hmm. Um, and the outcome of that uh she was hospitalized but she was okay uh she was an 82 year old woman um they paid for the damage to her house but maintained that they had the right address even when it was shown clearly that they did not um there's also this really disturbing trend of police killing dogs um this is something else that's come up as i've been collecting these stories um just recently there was uh, a really weird event where a cop and his family went to a shelter in Texas. Uh, let me just pull up the link. And basically what happened was the, the cop wanted to, you know, check out a couple of dogs, I guess, in a pen. And so without um, approval from the staff, uh, this officer let uh, three dogs into a kind of like a play area, usually 
this, the staff even comes out later and says they don't, you know, let more than one or two out at, at a time. But, you know, three of these dogs began to fight with each other. And I guess the officer didn't know what to do. So he picked up a two by four and proceeded to beat the living crap out of all of them. Um, two out of the three dogs died uh, from the from the injuries that they sustained. Um, but this cop was allowed to adopt a fourth dog and go home with him that same day. Um, oh, my. There was nothing. You're kidding. What was no, the- no, it's, it's this was in, uh, let's see, Montgomery County, Texas. Um, so he yeah, killed they, three dogs in the shelter and then took a, and then just took one with him to go. Well, three of them, he let three of them out, uh, and then they started fighting. And instead of being able to separate them like a normal person, he attacked them with a two by four. The resulting injuries uh, sustained killed two of the three. Uh, one of them survived, and he was allowed to go home with a fourth dog. Unbelievable. Well, that yeah, they're, right now they are pondering whether or not there's some sort of charges they want to file. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been reading these stories in the news for, well, it seems like years now about mm-hmm. the, the attacks on dogs. And it makes me wonder, I haven't seen any kind of, well, you might call it a whistleblower or something to say what's really going on yet. I, I'm wondering if there's something like that out there. Because when you look at the... What, what looks like an official policy to shoot on to to shoot on sight or like to shoot to kill um, people i mean that's that's pretty much out in the open. There are videos of police attending these conferences put on by these ex military mercenary guys who basically teach police officers that you've got to shoot to kill and there's uh I watched this one kind of mini documentary or investigative journalism report on this and they got a camera into one of these conferences, and the guy speaking is saying, he's giving some statistics. I don't remember them, so I'm just going to kind of make them up generally. But he said something like, okay, for this, de- police, for this police department last year, um, you guys shot your weapons like 130 times, and you, you killed something like 60 of the targets. Now, what does that say? Well, it means that you missed you know, 30, you know, 45% of the time or something like that. Basically saying that, when you shoot, you have to shoot to kill, and if you don't kill them, then you've failed as a cop because you need to kill them because that's the only way to protect yourself and make sure you're safe. So I'm pretty sure this is official policy in, in all these police departments that they, they do shoot to kill. That's how they're trained. That's what they're told to do. So it makes me think that there must be some kind of policy when you see a dog to shoot to kill that dog because it could pose a threat and you, you want to protect yourself at all costs, which is well what they say, but... I don't know. Yeah, you... and it's, it's it's a joke. I mean, I read another story about a five-pound chihuahua that was loose on a family's property, and somebody called the cops about a loose dog. They approached the dog and tried to, you know, capture it by hand. The dog snapped at one of the officers. They proceeded to tase and then shoot the dog. I mean, and we're talking about a five-pound chihuahua. This isn't, you know, a threat. And yet they they still killed it. And the family was obviously very distraught. There was a, you know, a husband, wife and three boys. And they couldn't understand why the police could, you know, they had to, you know, kill their dog. Uh, There was another one in New York City in the Bronx. Um, Police officer arrived in an apartment building on a domestic violence call. And as he was going out, um, you know, a woman had her had her door open and um her, her pit bull got out and pit bulls tend to be the scariest of, of dogs, I guess. Um, but you know, as 
he was approaching the officer, the woman was yelling, oh, he's friendly, he's friendly. The dog, he, there's video of this because there's a, a video camera in the, in the apartment building. And you can see the dog clearly just walk up to the officer very calmly, wagging his tail. The officer backs up, draws his gun, and like shoots a couple rounds into him. And that that dog died. <laughs> it's just like, it's just unbelievable. I mean, myself, I was uh, at a neighbor at a neighbor's house party uh, one evening, and um, somebody had called the police because the, the the attendees at the party had gotten a little too loud. And the police came, and my neighbor at the time he had a pit bull. And I answered the door uh, when it was when the cops arrived. We thought it was you know more guests, and opened the door. And lady, who's the the pit bull, she kind of just ran out to greet. And I, you know, once I saw it was the police, I just grabbed her by her hind quarters and reeled her right back into the house and closed the door behind me. Um, and, you know, I, and when I looked, I saw that that cop had drawn his gun. Like he was prepared to, to shoot a couple of rounds into her. It was just unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's just something like uh, there was a study done. Um, just the Chicago police. Um, so this is just in Chicago. The Chicago Tribune did a study. And according to the, the Tribune, the CPD there shot 90 dogs per year between 2008 and 2013. Right. And that's that's just in Chicago. <laughs> are, you, are you seeing any any rise of organizations and people banding together to do anything about this, you know, to protest or there's lots, carry? You there's know, definitely lots of groups on uh, on Facebook. I mean, if you look on, you know, like, if you Google the phrase cop shoots dog, you get so many hits. And mm-hmm. if you look on Facebook, there's groups for each of these dogs, justice for, you know, Abalone, justice for Lucy, justice for like, and all, and it just, it blew my mind when I, when I was scrolling through it, just how many of these pages and, you know, they have a couple of thousand likes per each one. Okay. But, but I mean, um, more, more in a sense of, of, you know, getting a grip on the whole phenomenon, people included. And it's kind of disturbing people. Well, you know, people people also rally behind individual human deaths too. But I mean, is how what's the state of organization for for tackling this problem in general? Uh, well, as far as I can tell, there's nothing for dogs specifically. Um, there are a couple of groups that have banded together. Um, there's a group called Cop Watch and another one called Cop Block, mm-hmm. and they um, they have websites. They're usually .orgs. You can Google them. Um, and they kind of make a habit of recording police, you know, their, their whole thing is, you know, pull out your cell phone and take a video. Mm-hmm. And in most states in the union, you can safely record the police without any sort of fear of reprisal. Um, as long as you're, you know, generally you have to be out of their way. You can't be up in their grill, but if you're like across the street and shooting video, you're, you're protected legally in New York specifically, there's, there's laws on the books. So I would tell people, you know, check the laws in your state, make sure that, you know, you know what your rights are. Um, but if you want to help, anytime you see police doing their thing, just pull out your phone and start taking a video. And there are several websites where you can, you can upload that video and you can share it. Um, think, these videos tend a, to go viral. Isn't there an, an app too? Like you can sign on to the app and, you know, even if your phone's about to get confiscated, if you've got the film, you can hit the app and it'll upload it. Even, and even if they grab your phone, it's already gone out. Um, there are, yeah, the ACLU put one out recently, Let's see if I can find the name, but they have, um, different versions available. There's a couple of these different filming the police apps. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, you can get that. And, uh, there's also like, um, 
like live leak has uh, an app that lets you basically live stream whatever's happening. And I think you can, you can save a copy of it to the cloud. I'm pretty sure iPhones um, have an option where you mm-hmm. can save videos to the cloud. Uh, as I said in the beginning, that was how this one guy um, had his video retained was that the, the cops, they, they will take your phone and they will delete videos. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, there's even a lawsuit I read not too long ago about um, where was it? There's a killing um, and the police basically took the phone, the only phone, the only video of the incident and they deleted the video. And now there's a, a lawsuit against them um, for doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't find the link right now. Something like destruction of personal property or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and they 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 threaten people all the time. Um, you know, if you don't give up the video, you'll be arrested. That's why it's very important for individuals to know their rights, um, especially on a state by state basis. They're, like I said, New York, I think California um, have laws on the books to protect um, individuals. Colorado actually has a law which uh, means that individual cops can suffer, uh, you know, financial reprisals if they take and delete video from an individual. Uh, there was a story not too long ago about a $15,000 fine that was uh, inflicted upon a police officer after he took uh, someone's phone and deleted the video. Mm. So it's important to know your rights. Um, and if you see something, you know, I'd say something, get online, network with these uh, these different websites. Like I said, Cop Lock is one, Cop Watch is another. I get a lot of stories from the free fr- uh, freethoughtproject.org. Mm-hmm. Um, they do a very good job of cataloging um, police abuse of power stories. Uh, there's also um, Countercurrent News does a lot of it. Uh, sometimes there's some overlap. And I've also been noticing a lot on RT lately. Um, they they seem to be covering these stories more and more. Um, there's one I have up right on my, on my web browser right now about <clears> – <throat> An officer who executed a litter of feral kittens in the backyard of someone's house uh, in front of some children. And the, uh, he was cleared of any wrongdoing. The, the officer was defended by his department. And this is another pattern that we see consistently. Generally, before even all the evidence has come out or, you know, both sides have had the opportunity to tell their stories, they call it the thin blue line. This, this sort of line comes down where, you know, the, the establishment, um, the, the department will protect their own, um, even when the the judgment of the officer involved is clearly in question. I mean, this guy, uh, he was responding to a litter of feral kittens that was in a woodpile behind a house in, uh, let's see, North Ridgeville, Ohio, June 10th, uh, 2013. And um, basically... He told the residents, uh, you know, they thought that you know, they were going to come and take the cats to maybe like a shelter or something. And he said that the, the shelters were full and that these cats would be going to kitty heaven, end quote. Um, and, uh, you know, she was the, the mother who had called the police. You know, she felt terrible. Her children were, you know, ostensibly like they were traumatized, basically. You know, they were all watching through the, uh, an upper level window as this cop pulled out his gun and just proceeded to execute this litter of kittens. And, you know, it was four children between the ages of five months and seven years. And, uh, you know, they were, they were shocked and crying and screaming. And, um, you know, basically uh, the uh, officer in charge, the police chief, uh, Mike Freeman, cleared the officer of any wrongdoing, included the actions were appropriate. 
Uh, he said, quote, after visiting the scene, talking with responding officer and re-interviewing the complainant, I have decided his actions were appropriate and decided not to impose any disciplinary measures for this incident. Hmm. Um, and it was just, it was just unbelievable. I mean, you know, you have a litter of feral kittens, you can, you know, scoop them up and if they have to be euthanized, so be it. But you don't have to pull out your gun and unload rounds in them in someone's backyard while children are watching. <laughs> well, it, it just seems that that's, that seems to be the, the rule rather than the exception uh, for these cops to behave in a hair trigger manner, quite literally, in so many instances. Um, and I just wanted to add, I thought your, uh, your story about uh, being at the party and being proactive about the dog is instructive um, because, you know, for, for every law that's on the books that would uh, seek to punish uh, a police officer for, for behaving so terribly, uh, it seems like there are another, uh, you know, hundred cases of them getting away with whatever it is they're doing. Um, so even knowing our rights, uh, we really have to be very careful uh, not to provoke, uh, and you know, a police officer into behaving aggressively, uh, because you just don't know uh, how how they're likely to respond to a given situation these days. Definitely. Uh, one thing that my, my dad always told me and, you know, my, my dad's father, my grandfather was a, a police officer and he was always very clear, you know, be, be very respectful with them. Don't get agitated. I mean, and this is stuff that, you know, legally we shouldn't be required to do. You know, it's, it's the officer who should be the bigger person. You know, they should be trained in dealing with people, especially people that are upset um, and they should be trained in how to de-escalate a situation as opposed to escalate. And again and again, we see police escalating the situation from something that, you know, maybe it's an argument, you know, like I saw this video, these, these three African-American teens in Baltimore, you know, and they were, they're shouting at the police officer, they're arguing, you know, you can't come in, you don't have a right, you don't have a warrant. Um, and that's, that's enough to, to get, you know, to set one of them off and they will grab you and they will physically assault you, they'll throw you to the ground. Um, so, but just to, to be aware of that. And if you kind of just, yes, sir, no, sir, them, then, you know, they tend to be a little bit more reasonable, but again, it's, it's kind of a tragic tragedy that, you know, we have to be as citizens, we have to be the ones to kind of control ourselves, to take a deep breath, you know, like just kind of like to calm ourselves because, you know, if you get into an argument with an officer, you could end up getting shot or killed. You just don't know. Um, so in other words, it, it, avoid cops like the plague, and if you can't avoid them, and if you've got a dog around and they come to your place, then quickly scoop up your dog, put them somewhere where they won't be found. And, yeah, uh, don't and your kittens. know who's coming to your door. And I, th I think it comes down to uh, something Lobachevsky said on political ponderology. You know, he describes... <clears throat> this sort of effect uh, in a pathocracy, and you could argue that you know government in the United States today is run by pathological individuals. Um, and he says, in a pathocracy, all leadership positions, down to village headman and community cooperative managers, not to mention directors of police units and special service police personnel, uh, must be filled by individuals with corresponding psychological deviations. So basically, he's suggesting that um, even the police and people that run the police, the police chiefs, are likely to be psychologically deviant when you have this sort of deviance on high. 
Um, so we as citizens have to be aware of that and have to kind of find ways to circumnavigate, work around them to protect ourselves and, and our loved ones. Great. Well, Brent, uh, do you have any other stories or uh, uh, is that I, it for today? I have so many stories. <laughs> I could go on for hours and hours, but I mean, I think that it gives a good uh, snapshot. Um, I think real quick, there was uh, another example of something we should worry about is the fact that when there's lawsuits against the police and people win these lawsuits for police brutality or you know wrongful, wrongful charges, whatever it may be, um, taxpayers end up paying out these individuals. So while the police may commit these atrocious, horrible crimes that everyone agrees are, are wrong, the money doesn't come from the officer or even the budget for the police department. It gives them no incentive to sort of rein themselves in. Mm -hmm. And just recently there was a, uh, a $4.9 million lawsuit against the city of Chicago uh, after a kid was beat, tasered, and dragged from a cell and died in police custody. So that $4.9 million for something that was clearly you know, wrong, uh, that, that came from the taxpayers. And that's money out of our pockets. And <laughs> why should we be paying when these officers commit these hor horrible crimes? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and there's some movement to change the laws so that when stuff like this happens, that it comes out of the police pensioners fund. So at least it would give them a little sort of incentive to rein themselves in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's a good point for me to end on. There's, there's a lot to talk about, but I can, I can talk about it some other time. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll, you'll be coming on like every week. So we have more to look forward to. Well, <laughs> look forward to hearing your voice, but not necessarily hearing what you have to say. Cause it's pretty sick stuff, but uh, thanks yeah, for, good. yeah. Thanks for your segment, Brent. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. Thanks for the show, guys. Appreciate right. it. I really enjoyed the interview too. That was it was interesting information I had Great. never heard before. Yeah, mm -hmm. we were too, especially to get an idea of what the what the NSA was like, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same 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 song, different tune. Yeah. All right, well thanks Brent. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye Brent. So, I think we're just going to talk about one more story before we call it a night. Call it a day, wherever you are, maybe morning. Um, did you have a story you wanted to bring up, Elon? Well, uh, in recent weeks, uh, we've been hearing quite a lot about the 28 pages of uh, information concerning Saudi Arabia's uh, possible financing in 9-11. Yes, this is the famous Document 17. <laughs> yes. And uh, as... As the story progresses, it, it just keeps getting more and more interesting. Of course, one of the questions we've been asking is, why now? Um, these are the 28 pages that were pretty much kept under lock and key uh, by Congress or whoever was in charge of uh, the 28 pages, I believe. Well, it wasn't Congress that was responsible for their redaction, I don't believe, because Congress actually did the investigation. Mm -hmm. This was in 2002 that the report came out. This was the Joint Intelligence or Joint Inquiry um, into Intelligence Matters relating to 9-11. And so they wrote this 800-page report, which was then used by the 9-11 Commission. And in these 800 pages, there are hundreds of redactions throughout the main report. So that those in themselves probably amount to at least 28 pages in themselves. And then the entire last chapter, 
which dealt with foreign aid, foreign funding for the attacks, was completely redacted. So every every word of the 28 pages was redacted. And so this was after the this was for the official release. So the 9/11 Commission got to read the full report, unredacted, but the public hasn't been able to read those classified sections since you know for 14 years. So there's been this move for it's been going on for years now to have these 28 pages released, and Senator Bob Graham has been one of the guys really pushing for it, and it's just kind of made the news again in the past couple of weeks, like you were saying, Ilan. But at a very convenient time for international politics, as far as the U.S. is going. Because. Because. <laughs> well, it just seems that, uh, you know, it, it has nothing to do with uh, wanting to get the truth out, per se. Uh, it is politically motivated, as, as you were saying, Carolyn. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems to be, it's shaping up to be a tool in the uh, manipulative, manipulative uh, kind of uh, toolbox of the U.S. in order to bring Saudi Arabia under heel uh, concerning its um, kind of tentative decision to, uh, to cut production of oil. Um, now, of course, uh, what this, you know, the context of this is, you know, in, in 2014, in reaction to uh, Russia asserting its um, its kind of place um, in supporting the, the Nouveau Russians uh, in um, kind of countering the the coup uh, in Ukraine, um, this of, of course upset uh, U.S. interests quite a bit. Uh, I mean, the nerve of, of Russia to come out and uh, support these people uh, against a regime that was entirely racist, uh, kind of genocidal, killing many innocent people. And the uh, pet project of the U.S. Yes. Uh, you know, clearly a U.S. coup, and, and Russia kind of drew the line. Um, it's a story that we've talked about many many times here before on the truth perspective. Um, and on top of that, they helped Crimea assert its, uh, its democratic decision to join uh, the Russian Federation, um, which is also a key uh, geostrategic point uh, in that part of the world uh, for Russia and for the U.S. that has been attempting to um, encircle Russia with uh, with NATO powers, so that's just kind of the backdrop of um, this kind of full hybrid war that the U.S. so often accuses Russia of uh, trying to perpetrate against the Western world. When it's in fact the U.S. that's been doing this. Again, it's something we've talked about a lot here. Um, so what do they do? Uh, they basically, uh, in cahoots with Saudi Arabia, the U.S conspires to, you know, ra uh, raise the, um, the production of oil in order to get the prices of oil uh, really at the bottom of the barrel, so to say, just to hurt the Russian economy. Um, and, and, you know, there was some results in that area. Uh, so 
Um, well, the results, some of the some of which were, first of all, Russia has been hurting econ economically, mm -hmm. not necessarily to the extent that <clears throat> the Americans would like, but it is there. But also for the Saudis, because the Saudis aren't winning anything by doing this either. They're they haven't been making money. They're their, their treasury's bleeding. Yeah. And I even I, I read a, a report, an analysis at the time that this was going on that even suggested that it, perhaps it's possible the Saudis weren't even on board with this deal to, to up production and that it had something to do with um, U.S. shale gas industry and that it could have been um, because, I mean, there are no like official minutes of meetings where you can see that Saudi Arabia totally got on board with this. I mean, that's what everyone's saying. It's probable but it's also possible that this was this was against Saudi Arabia's wishes at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know whether they went along with it or not. I mean they could have been coerced into doing it. But so since then the the Saudi economy has been just at the bottom of the barrel, like you said, no pun intended, and they're hurting. And so what happens is that a lot of a lot of these um, countries, these oil rich countries like Russia and Saudi Arabia, got together recently and they were planning this production freeze, which would raise prices and everyone would kind of benefit. But of course, there was the issue of Iran. So now that Iran, a lot of its sanctions have been officially like officially lifted, at least on paper, they've been upping their production. And so right away, Iran said, well, you know, we're not going to go along with it. Or, you know, we're, we're pushing for 40 million barrels a day or something like that. And so there was this summit a week or two ago. Mm -hmm. That, where they all got together to agree on this, and it was pretty much, if you read the reports leading up to it, pretty much every country involved was on board, at least publicly. Mm -hmm. They were going to go along with it. Iran was the only one that kind of had conditions and said, "Well, you know, we we've been we've been under sanctions for so long, we we need the money." And so it seemed like perhaps there would be like an exception for them, or maybe there would be, you know, they'd let, let them produce up to a certain level. Um, kind of negotiate it, and that's what this conference was for, to negotiate and come up with a, a beneficial situation for everyone involved. And what happens, the Saudis come and pretty much throw a hissy fit and say, we're not doing it. Mm -hmm. And that supposedly came from, uh, and just before they were supposed to sign the thing, apparently uh, one of the princes, I'm sorry, I don't have his name, uh, purportedly got a call at 3 a.m., the morning that they were supposed to, you know, all get together and have their final ceremony and everybody signs it and they all go home and everybody's going to make some money and walked in and said, sorry, we can't do it. We can't do it. And so you wonder what this phone call was and, you know, it just logically might, you know, flow from this idea that you do this and then we're going to hang you out to dry on 9-11 and that will be, you will be a pariah state as far as the West is concerned. Um, the Saudis since countered, oh, possibly, all right, I haven't got the timeline right, but they also countered back saying, you know, if if you lean on us, then we'll sell $750 million or billion dollars? Billion. Billion, yes. billion dollars worth of U.S. treasuries, which would be a very devastating blow to the U.S. economy because all that money would come back and hyperinflation and everything. So there's this move and counter move and threats in the background and uh, so far, the U.S. seems to have the upper hand in terms of leaning on Saudi Arabia. So what's in those papers seems to be pretty damning. And they've only released – they haven't released all of it, just, you know, tidbits here and there. Uh, the other use that this this uh, little set of 
document seems to have is that if they've made an example of Saudi Arabia, uh, in Harrison, you wrote in your article that there was uh, a mention uh, by Mr. Graham about uh, governments being involved, plural, and that would be Pakistan, Turkey, Israel, and the U.S. So this is a nice big two-by-four to hold over their heads and say. Yeah, well, and that's all part of the mystery because the, mm-hmm. the title of the chapter, which isn't declassified, is, uh, implies more than one country. And then it wasn't Graham. I can't remember who it was. It was just another guy that's part of this movement, a senator or congressman who's read it and said governments plural and was very specific about that. So, but we don't we don't know officially at all what governments are mentioned in these twenty eight pages. Mm-hmm. Um, the so so in my article, the point I was trying to make is that there are several governments that have been implicated, but we don't know which ones are actually mentioned in this report. Right. What we do know is that they're. There, like, if we look at the the joint inquiry and the 9/11 commission, we know that there were they were given evidence and testimony from numerous people that or had access to um, FBI records, local police investigations that would point to Turkish, Israeli, Pakistani involvement. Mm-hmm. So whether any of these reports are included in the 28 pages, we don't know because they're they are classified and no one who's read them can talk about them. So I think that one of the reasons that they're going with the Saudi angle is that in the joint inquiry report, they do there are several mentions of the Saudi connection that weren't declassified, and this is or that weren't classified, mm-hmm. and this has all been public like not like public knowledge since at least twenty two two thousand two, maybe even before that two thousand one with media reports, and this is the very obvious Saudi connections of um, what seems to be official support from very high ranking. Saudi individuals and charities and rich people to to some of the the alleged hijackers in the states. They were providing them with money and housing and and English lessons and flight school training, and and then uh, well, and there were even connections to some Bin Laden family members who conveniently flew the coop on uh, September twentieth. Mm-hmm. So there are all these connections. Um, in there, well, there are all these connections. Who knows what, how many of, their, of them are in there? And who knows how much of this latest media blitz has been a big bluff or a big threat? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. So, so you mentioned the, the, the Saudi threat to, to sell this $750 billion worth of what were there, treasury bonds or something. Yeah, U.S. treasuries. And um, so that actually happened in response to this lawsuit that's going on in the States, some of the 9-11 family members are trying to get a law passed which would allow them to sue the Saudi government. And so, in res- and that would mean that um, if they were successful, the, the U.S. courts could freeze any foreign um, assets of the Saudis. So, I mean, their, their response makes sense because they could... Cons- conceivably you know go to court and have these assets frozen so if that's if that's going to happen they're naturally going to get their assets out of the united states mm-hmm. so that that wouldn't happen there's well we could talk about that lawsuit too i mean because that on the one hand it could be a good thing because that would open up it set the president for other nations bringing the u.s to to trial mm-hmm. for their involvement in terrorism in other countries but on the other hand it it it's kind of one of those um, well, like many laws, it's, it has so many different possibilities that could be used for nefarious purposes. That could, this could easily, easily be used to um, to bring innocent 
nations to, to, to cripple innocent nations by saying that they support terrorism when they didn't. So it's, a, it's, it's not a black and white issue with this lawsuit. So the Saudis make this kind of counter threat, which is pretty reasonable given what, you know, just given how nations operate. And then after that threat in the news, Bob Graham comes out again and says, we're, re- we're releasing the pages. Mm-hmm. And so he said explicitly that these were going to be declassified. Now, since then, I haven't seen any news related to that. So, and then after, so after he said that, after he said these pages are going to be declassified, that's when this meeting happened in Doha mm. and where the Saudis said, we're not part, going to be part of this deal. So, that, I mean, it's all very suggestive that, the, that, that this whole threat to release the 28 pages is directly against Saudi Arabia to, to say, don't get, any, don't get any ideas of, of get going off the, the plan here, <laughs> of, of, stop, of stopping to do what we tell you to do. Um, if you do, we're going to hang you out to dry. And so it looks like if that's the case, the Saudis got on board and said, okay, and canceled the talks. Okay, we'll, you know, we're fine not making any money, which is ridiculous. It's a totally self-defeating choice, which makes it, uh, makes you think that it was, that they were coerced into doing it, threatened. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, all of this just speaks to uh, the U.S.'s absolute commitment to uh, subvert, uh, destabilize, and even destroy Russia at any cost. I mean, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have been in bed together in a love fest of, uh, of, of making money off of oil, controlling the supply of oil, the, the pricing of oil, um, supporting uh, and building up uh, proxy terrorist forces to destroy Syria and God knows what else. Uh, they've uh, been in cahoots in, in Yemen for the past year or two. Um, I mean, these are two countries that have been working side by side very closely, politically, economically, for many years. Uh, the Bush family, intimate uh, friends of of the Saudi royal family. Um, the Bush family, uh, having worked closely with the bin Laden family uh, in, in building projects in the Middle East for many years. Um, so for this to be occurring right now, I mean, this is uh, a major rift. Uh, it's suggestive of uh, a lot of uh, desperate instability on the part of the U.S. to be uh, risking so much uh, and, and, and risking bringing hell on itself. Um, it, it just speaks to uh, how crazy um, and, and how unstable the situation here uh, in the U.S. is. And uh, just to just to add one more point about that, um, you know, it, it really looks as though uh, for a while there anyway, the possibility existed that Saudi Arabia's cooler heads might prevail uh, in, in the sense of um, wanting to establish uh, greater ties with uh, Russia, Iran, possibly, and China, and kind of like seeing the writing on the wall. So like you said, Harrison, you know, get with the program. Uh, you're not going to be allowed to, to, to change your, uh, your strategy according to our dictates. That seems to be the, the order of the day. And uh, who knows what we'll see in the next uh, few weeks. Uh, it might be that, that uh, Saudi Arabia did come under heel with, with this threat of exposure. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think that speaks a lot to the loss of uh, the U.S.'s loss of its uh, place as the, you know, the world hegemon. Uh, hegemon. 
because you know, as a as a hegemon, you you have the the leadership potential in you know all different spheres, economically and militarily, politically, and so then everyone kind of follows your lead. You know, and the U.S. has pretty much forced people to follow their lead. You know, by the barrel of a gun and through you know financial warfare for the past fifty, sixty years. But um, right now, obviously, just that there's a the fact that Russia is now assuming that role, it's drawing, you know, the Saudis into their orbit Mm -hmm. and many other nations too are coming into their orbit. And so right now you're just, you're really seeing the desperation on the part of these, uh, of this pathological cabal as it, you know, it loses its, uh, all of its relevance for, for everyone, even their own puppets. Well, you know, the fact that the puppets are sort of scanning and watching for a weakness where they can slip the leash, so to speak, that's, you know, it's a pretty, pretty gutsy move on Saudi Arabia's part. I mean, not that I'm condoning them, but, you know, every country does have a sense of self-preservation, and they're obviously alive to the fact that that their current alliance is not going to do them much good for much longer. Well, I think um, I think it was Pepe Escobar mm-hmm. who said that uh, ultimately, uh, you know, bucking the U.S.'s control, uh, Saudi Arabia just doesn't have the balls to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they they get a lot of their arms from the U.S., uh, a lot of their logistical support in in, in crushing the Yemeni um, revolt. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both allied in going after Iran, uh, which is Saudi Arabia's uh, geopolitical adversary in the Middle East, um, and. <laughs> not not that I feel sorry for Saudi Arabia, but they're in a bit of a pinch right now. Yeah. They've spent many billions of their dollars propping up these ISIS and Daesh and Al-Qaeda forces in, in Syria. They've got a very expensive war going on uh, against Yemen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because of the price drop in oil, they've been, you know, not getting the revenue that they're used to. I mean, mm-hmm. how many palaces and yachts have they been deprived of uh, as a result of, of this think cut of the, in resources? Think of the Saudi princes. Well, not only that, but they, they have one of the most ex, you know extensive, I don't want to call it a welfare state, but you know basically pretty much no Saudi citizen has to work. But with the budget, you know, with, with their revenues dropping so precipitously, they're talking about... Um, you know, fees and cuts to subsidies, and and they could have a very ugly domestic situation developing in the near future. On top of everything else, yes, I hear their head choppers and executioners are. Uh, Had to take a pay cut. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a few fewer gold-plated Ferraris. It's a tragedy, really. But um, it looks like we're at the end of the show today. Unless anyone has some some final comments on these crazy Saudis, it looks like a uh, Corey's Corey's out of commission. He's laughing too hard. But, uh, well, it's it's going to be an interesting rest of April. Yep, and we'll we'll follow the news and we'll bring it to you when we know what's going on. It's interesting times. So thanks everyone. Thanks again to Paul Abram for filling us in on his pretty remarkable experiences and. Uh, and his great stories. He had some great ones in there. Made us laugh. <laughs> and thanks to Brent for the first cop roundup. First of many. It's going to be good. So thanks, everyone. And we'll be back next week with another show. Um, See you all soon. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. <laughs>
Bye, everyone.